Welcome back, Kofkin Bond listeners. Uh, welcome to episode 102 of the Kofkin Bond podcast. I've, uh, I've taken over the duties of hosting today from Jamie. Jamie's got a bit of a sore throat and I don't think you'll be able to hear a word he said today, so uh, that responsibility falls to me. But um, here with Tony at the moment to talk about uh, the path towards buying your first home. Are you nervous? A little bit. I think it's a little harder to host than it is to be interviewed, I think. Um, but, but Jamie will judge you. Yeah, as will all the listeners. Absolutely. So <laughs> in here with uh, Dean Licardi yesterday, he was saying Jamie was one of the best interviewers he's ever heard. So you got a lot to live up to. And Dean, I know you listen to these. So it's uh, Jamie was very appreciative of that feedback, and then fell into a heap and can't do it today, mate. <laughs> well, I wasn't that nervous until now. Now I'm a bit, <laughs> bit of a mess, I think, after that. So cheers. That's my water. Stop looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Um, I guess we'll get started then. The, the less talking I can do in this one, the better. Um, if uh, if you were to give some advice, or not advice, but some tips for a person maybe starting from scratch, um, looking to, to go and purchase their home, I guess we'll we'll start with the home deposit. Um, what are some of the things that you've you've seen people do that have been successful, and maybe some unsuccessful things that uh, that have helped people get their first home? There's, it really comes down to the individual circumstances and what they want. Um, so if we're talking about you know an individual or a couple and their first home buyers as an example, uh, their scenario might be a bit different than say somebody who's upsizing. So if we start off with say their first home buyer, maybe a couple of individuals, the first thing they have to do is know how much they're willing to spend uh so what what they'll need to save so will they just be saving a deposit or will they be saving a deposit and stamp duty uh, etc so it depends on their individual circumstances but it also then uh, goes back to them having an understanding of where their cash flow and budget is now so because a lot of people if they don't have anything to save for they tend to spend everything that they earn uh, so, and it doesn't matter what income you're on, you'd be, you'd be surprised at how many people earn gross incomes of, you know, six, seven hundred thousand dollars a year and don't have enough money to pay even half their tax, you know, come the end of the year, it's, it's, a, it's a regular occurrence. So if we're talking that normal mid-twenties want to save for a deposit on their first house, yep. and let's say that's going to be so they, uh, first home buyers grant here in Victoria is under 750. I think so, 750 purchase price, 600 is it? Okay, so Willard's obviously looked into it for his own personal <laughs> circumstances. So, um, But the, the scenario is um, they've got, they, they need deposits. So let's say they're not going to get stung by stamp duty and they're, they're going to get the first home buyer's grant. They're going to need deposit and so they're not getting stung by mortgage insurance, which is a bit of a rot in its own, in its own right. Uh, the realistically they should be looking at 15 even up to a 20% deposit on that property. Now there's a couple of scenarios. First of all, if they were to have to save 100 grand and let's say they're going to save that over a three year period, could uh, they now have a goal? Their goal is to save $100,000. And let's assume property prices haven't moved that dramatically over the three years. So their goal is to um, save $100,000 now for that deposit, say, over a three-year period. Uh, the second goal is is if they'd borrowed 500000 
can they make repayments? And there's a lot of pitfalls that people can make when it comes to calculations. So the first thing I, I would do, or you would do, Sean, or even Josh would do, or Matt would do, or Lucy would do, is basically say, okay, what is the goal that we actually have to aim for? So in this case, $100,000. What's the best way of doing it? First thing they have to do is understand their budget, where their money is going to on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis now. And that's where we get uh, our absolute rock star of uh, budgeting, Lucy, uh, involved there. And Lucy would get in where she would actually go right into depth on the person's spending habits and have a look at what is their savings capability and what is their discretionary spending. So once we have that worked out, we can say, okay, you've currently got $5,000 saved uh, from your current net incomes. How are we going to reach that target of hundred grand now? Simple maths, save 33,000 bucks a year, but they haven't been very successful in doing that at the moment. So how are they actually gonna do that? So even over a three year period, they might use, for example, a NAB equity builder loan because it's far easier, or you're far more disciplined, just human nature, to repay debt than actually what you are to save on a monthly basis. Because there's always, oh, we're gonna go up here and we'll just put more away next month. And that's why, the, people who don't have money to pay their tax always get into these holes. So could you maybe just briefly touch on what the, the NAB Equity Builder is? Because I've, I've personally had a few conversations um, with some friends, often over a beer or two, just about um, about what that is, especially when I first learned, learned when I started here. Yeah, the first thing, when we call, it is called the NAB Equity Builder and it's run by the National Australia Bank. Uh, now in saying that we're not pushing a product it's just that there's no other product like it as a lending product like it in the marketplace so you can have margin lending which is similar but more expensive and far more risky there's uh, so the reason why it's called the NAB equity builder loan is because that's exactly what it is but uh, I'll put it right out there we're not pushing NAB in any way whatsoever okay so that's number one Uh, if they have competitions then whoever's the best gets the business Uh, Right now, they don't have any competition. What that is, is let's say, for example, that individual has that $5,000 in savings. Uh, They can actually go, we'll invest that, and we can borrow up to $10,000 against that. Now, the minimum repayment, sorry, the you can have a repayment term up to 15 years, but um, we, it's always a P&I repayment, so principal and interest repayments, not interest only, and defeat the purpose of saving. And let's say they borrowed that 10000 they can still, uh, whereas the minimum term is three years, they can still nominate and pay it out early at any time. But the facility is left open, it's like what's commonly known as a line of credit. So let's say then over the space of a six month period, they've now paid off that $10,000. Well, they've actually now got 15 grand. On that basis, they could then go and borrow 30 grand. So we've now got, um, we've now got uh, 15 invested to borrow 30, they've now got 45,000. Now on that savings of what I've just done, that I have to save 33 a year anyway over that, um, basically they might pay that 30 off uh, once Lucy's gone through all their discretionary spending and shown them where they're wasting money. Yeah. Um, they might actually pay that 30,000 off now, say over a 12 or 13 month period. They've now got total $45,000. The following year, uh, they can do it again. They can just reborrow another 30. They don't have to go to 60 this time. But if they go to 60, they've got their 100 net. Now, I haven't included any returns on interest on this whatsoever. But what they've now got is that 60,000, that might be paid off over two years. 
So now it is invested, so market fluctuations can occur. Uh, one, one of the interesting parts of it though, and you know, I've told this story before and he doesn't mind me telling, but Josh, when the uh, COVID hit last year, he had paid off a lot of his debt on his NAB equity builder. So when COVID hit, he saw that as the perfect opportunity to actually draw his loan up again and actually use those funds to invest. And the six-month period or nine-month period after COVID, he certainly his portfolio absolutely boomed because he was buying stocks he already liked, but at a cheaper price now. So he liked them. He just liked them more even at this price. So so from, from that perspective, what you've now got over the three years is even with no returns on the investment, which we hope there'll be some, obviously, it's invested on market, uh, but it's over three years, things can fluctuate. So what you would actually want is saying, they've now actually saved that $100,000. They now have the capability to show the bank number one is that they've actually got a repayment history. So when it comes to applying for a loan, especially as a first home buyer, if they don't have a credit history of the bank, the bank can be, not so nice in respect to interest rates uh, that are offered. So, so the basis of it now is they've actually got shown that they've got a repayment schedule. They might be renting or living at home with mum and dad, uh, but they've actually shown that they've been able to pay $33,000 a year. So in respect to servicing a current principal and interest loan, they've certainly got, because they're no longer paying rent either, and that might have been you know, another 25,000 bucks a year, they've certainly got the capability now to start making principal and interest repayments on that loan. So there's a way how they've, they've got a set goal, they've created debt, the debt has to be repaid every month, it's done, they've now achieved that goal and they've now got those funds uh, to be able to utilise for that next part of that goal, which was to buy their first house. Sure, and I guess while we're, while we're talking about um, where to invest your savings. Another sort of topic that's been brought to my attention has been term deposits. How do you feel about um, people using those uh, in order to save for a home? I think it, this might be a quick answer. <laughs> uh, I've got to be diplomatic. Um, term deposits are short term uh, savings. If somebody said, I've got to me, I've got $100,000 and I want you to invest it, but I need it in 12 months, I'd be saying, well, I'm not going to invest it, you're going to have an return deposit. And the reason being is because over any 12-month period, let's say we put it on market, over any 12-month period, if you take COVID as an example, the quarter from January to March during the COVID quarter, it was down, you know, depends on what fund you're in, but it could be down anywhere from negative four up to about negative 11% uh, during that quarter. Now, if that quarter was to happen just towards the end of the investment cycle where you needed that cash, all of a sudden you're potentially down on capital ten or $11,000. So for a short-term perspective, it would be you just put the money in a term deposit, it would not be invested. And if any plan had told you to invest it uh, in anything that is not a defensive asset like a term deposit, cash or bonds, um, you know, basically it's a case of that, well, you're not doing much. Also remember too, though, term deposits right now are paying next to nothing. Uh, a lot of people still seem to, you know, when they say, oh, my funds haven't done much, I've only earned 6%, you know, you know, I, I might as well have just left it in cash. Well, not really, because the term deposit's about 0.75, and then that's fully taxable at your marginal tax rate. So think of it as a place to sit your money, not necessarily a place to invest your money in regards to a term deposit. And you can't just add to it on a monthly basis, whereas if you think of that NAB equity build alone, you got that 10 grand, uh, you borrow 20, 
but you're actually for savings because you're repaying that 20. You haven't bought a car with it, which is a depreciated asset. You've actually put it into an investment. So you're hoping that 30 might even be worth over, you know, that year 32 or something like that. So it's actually earned some interest above what you would have earned in, say, a term deposit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and while we're talking about the low rates on term deposits and rates in general, um, could you comment on the state of the market given that interest rates are so low right now, how that potentially may affect affordability in the future if interest rates were to rise? Yeah, it's, first of all, if, you, if you're going to buy a house and it interest rates at this rate or any rate, whatever they are, let's say interest rates were 6%, uh, and not current the current, you know, unbelievably low figures. You know, less than two percent in some cases uh, that you have out there. The first thing is is that you have to be able to repay principal and interest. Number one, when we're doing cash flow projections for clients, because a mortgage is not short term unless you come into, you know, an inheritance or a tax, tax lotto winning or something like that. Uh, I would always do the numbers based on what the repayments would be at a 6% interest rate rise. And can you afford that 6% interest rate uh, at your current income today? So when it comes to borrowing capacity, what that means is that if you could if you could afford to make, re- let's say the half million dollar loan we spoke about earlier, yep. you pay that principal and interest. You might set that up, don't set that up for 30 years, you know, set that up for 20 years or 25 years even. But if you have a variable or an offset account attached to it as well, start paying it off as if you were paying off 6%. Don't pay off the bare minimum, especially whilst interest rates are so low. Because the scenario is when interest rates, and they will one day in the future, uh, certainly uh, within your lifestyle, lifetime, but definitely mine. So it's uh, the, the basis of it is, is they are going to rise and if all of a sudden your income capacity hasn't risen by as much, but the interest rates are now six percent, you might have your income might have risen, but you might now have a couple of children and school fees and extra mouths to feed and extra expenses and and all those things as well. But if you can't repay it at a six percent interest rate now, now you could end up losing your property when interest rates do invariably they will rise uh, one day in the future. So we are living in a bit of a state of nirvana when it comes to borrowing money at the moment, uh, but don't do not do that. So even in respect to the businesses we've purchased, we've, all, we've always looked at if the interest rates were uh, 7.5%, they're nowhere near that, they're as low as mortgage rates, but if they're 7.5%, can we still make principal and interest repayments? And that's that's our what we look at our own business borrowing capacity. It's not just on a mortgage with everything. Yeah. Don't push yourself to the limits when times are good, because uh, when you do hit the headwind, you've got a, you've got enough equity and know that you can still do it quite comfortably. Yeah, good to have that buffer. Um, it's so, a conservative side of me. <laughs> so I guess the next uh, the next scenario which we we touched on uh, before the podcast. What about, for example, a 30-year-old who's recently come into an inheritance? So parents, unfortunately, have passed away. Maybe they've inherited the family home or just the estate itself. Um, Could you just touch on maybe the tax position of all that and some of the options available to that person, uh, whether they're an only child or maybe they have a few siblings as well? Okay, so in today's current environment uh, and tax laws, if you inherit the family home, uh, from a deceased parent, uh, that home is CGT exempt. It's a ex- capital gains tax exempt asset, 
as long as it's sold within two years of the of death of the uh, not inheritance but as of death um, of in this case the deceased deceased parent but it's not just having sold it within two years it's having sold it and received the cash and this is very important because a lot of people think okay they sell it and someone's asked for a six-month settlement and that pushes them over yep. and then all of a sudden there'll be a CGT event so even if the house is worth a million dollars at the point of death and then two years later it was sold for 1.2 million there's still no capital gains tax on it okay so that's the first scenario so if there was one sibling or three if there was if there was a couple of siblings I have a younger sister uh, she doesn't live in Australia she might say uh, Tony I can I just have my half of the value of the property and I have a choice then do I raise the finance to actually buy her out there's no CGT issues for her um, if I was to do that and keep the property and rent it out myself or do I just sell the property and I keep my half and she keeps her half and it's all done within the two years and received within the two years and it's all then received tax-free. The second scenario is you might decide to keep that property and rent it out. It's, it's in a good location, it's a nice property and it can be rented out for a decent dollar and it has no debt. Um, on it, uh, so we'll assume it has no debt on it yeah. uh, in the event of a deceased estate. So, uh, so basically, it's a case of let's say it was that million dollar property. You might receive thirty two, thirty three thousand dollars a year rent for that. Uh, now, besides some rates and things like that, you might have to pay. There's, you know, th that's a pretty decent income or taxable income. And I won't go into testamentary trust. We touched on all that last time. Uh, I think last week actually. So, but if we think about that scenario, I might decide to keep that and rent it out. So what happens is it's a CGT free asset. As I mentioned earlier, if it's sold and funds received within two years of the date of death uh, of the person you've inherited from. Secondly though, if you decide to rent it out and four years down the track or five years down the track, you decided to sell it then. And at that stage, it's now worth $1.5 million. So it's gone up. 50% in value over the space of those five years. It's been a bumper market, boom market. The You will have to pay capital gains tax on that, but the cost base is the value of the property at the time of when the person passed away. So if it was valued at $1 million then, that's now the cost base. The cost base is not the purchase price of the property uh, upon when they've, uh, of when the deceased um, purchased the property. Yep. It's based on what the value of the property was at the date they passed away. So it's always worthwhile getting a it's an emotional time. Uh, so thinking all these things, you know, sometimes you need a checklist and you need someone like us to help do that and a lawyer. But get a valuation of the property so that you're not rushed into making a decision uh, when it comes to, say, selling as an example. Uh, so you have an idea, you know what it is, you know what it's worth, and what you don't want is going five years down the track. And they said, oh, you know, Tony passed away in December, and yeah, the property market was booming that, back then. We reckon it's worth 1.3, you know, it was worth, uh, oh no, it was before the boom started, so we reckon it was only worth about 800,000 then. So actually get a valuation done. You know, pay 300 bucks or whatever and actually get a proper valuation done to show at the point of sale, the tax office, the tax office will say, yep, valuation done back then, box ticked, uh, capital gains tax only on 500 less than 50% discount on 250, so 120 tax bill. Yep. Alrighty, so I guess... Before we worked our magic. 
yeah. got that down. Yeah, <laughs> so, so, yep. so I was probably bouncing back to that first scenario. Uh, final question. So someone's been in, they've seen Lucy, they've got their budget sorted, they've managed to save up enough for a deposit, stamp duty, their cash flow is at a, a reasonable level. Uh, what would be the first step or the next step uh, to get the ball rolling to really achieve that goal? Well, the first thing is that, I mean, they've come to see us, so that we've worked out what their goal is, number one. We then have to work out how they're going to fund that goal, number two. That's where Lucy's come into it. The third step is, okay, we're now on track to getting it. Uh, we've hit the number that you want. At that stage, we're probably going to redeem the investments now. Now, because they are growth assets, we have to be careful when we would redeem them. So in respect to the time of the year, because of tax purposes and things like that. So if we were to redeem them and there was, say, a you know, a $5,000 realised capital gain, $2,500, there might be a $1,000 tax bill on it. As an example, still better than the return deposit, but they could, you know, make a $1,000 contribution to super if they want to reduce that slightly, uh, personal contribution. If not, just pay the tax. <laughs> so yeah. it's, uh, uh, you're left with that money. Now, the reason why I say that is what you don't want to happen is you're all ready to go and COVID hits and all of a sudden your portfolio is down 10%. And so you have to now save another $10,000. Okay, so we know we've hit your target. When we've hit your target, it's time to redeem the funds and it's time to start looking. At that time, that's when I would actually, personally, I'd engage a, one of our younger clients, Chris did this, engaged um, a property advocate that we happily refer our clients to, uh, Rob German. And Rob found him a property that got him the you know stamp duty concessions and uh, a bit of help with the first home buyers grants and and paid that and Rob found him a magnificent property and probably saved him about twenty odd thousand dollars on that purchase price as well. So so based on that, I would then look at adv uh, getting a. One of the things a property advocate does it takes their emotion out of the purchase so that you're not end up overspending. Uh, number one and secondly you would also have uh, the ability where he can turn around and say, for what you want, it's unrealistic. You, you can't have that in Fitzroy North at that price, you know, as an example. But then the third part we'll do is make sure uh, the finance is pretty much approved and ready to go based on a certain number. And you, that usually, a, an offer would usually be kept open, I think, for about 90 days. Uh, so in other words, you've now got you've got the finance ready to tick the box you've got the deposit sitting in the bank account uh you've got the property advocate searching for your property that you want we you know with all your desires within your price range within sort of the postcodes that you actually want and then basically go forth and multiply uh go 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 and achieve goal number two absolutely start moving in absolutely um, okay well i think that that brings us to the end of the podcast for today. Thanks for bearing with me. I hope I did Jamie a little bit of justice. Um, anything you'd like to add to finish it off? Your voice isn't as husky as Jamie's, number one. I haven't got the Myrtleford drawl. And I'm not too sure, Will, out what you think, but it was nice to see uh, somebody interviewing me not falling asleep when I'm giving answers. Was, was that good? Is that fair call? Yep, he's nodding. <laughs> he's nodding in approval. So oh. it's uh, nice to know that you stayed alert and didn't fall asleep or get distracted, uh, Sean. Good, no. good, good job, mate. No and Jamie's apprentice. We'll call you now. Oh. We'll change your nickname for the office. What was it? I don't know. I don't know what, what was it? Oh, we're not putting, more, we're not putting <laughs> more nicknames out there into the into the ether. Okay, mate. No, well done. Good job. <laughs> Thanks, Tony.